Hi, and welcome to a special series of The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. And this is Eastern Africa's Jihadis, produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. Over five weeks, we're exploring the roots and spread of jihadism across the Eastern African coast, from Somalia to Mozambique. Today we have Dr. Adriano Navunga, a political science professor and executive director of the Center for Democracy and Development in Maputo, to discuss with us the growing insurgency in northern Mozambique. Dr. Navunga, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you. So when did you first start hearing of the trouble brewing in northern Mozambique, in, in Cabo Delgado? Oh, that was uh, almost four years ago when the first indications that there were strange movements in the area. But I think uh, those first indications were not uh, taken seriously. They were neglected until the first attack, it hit Musimba da town. Yeah. And what do we know about the, the group of militants and how and why uh, they formed? More information is gradually starting to surface as to who these people are. Recently, some names as to who the leaders are, they were unveiled by civil society uh, studies and also by some embassies. But the reality is that a lot more need to be learned as to who these people are. Uh, the knowledge is that these people are violent extremists. Some people would say that they are part of international terrorist groups. In our view, these are local people that have become extremists in response to the ecosystem of governance, of extractivism in the Cabo Delgado area. Uh, although we have heard the leaders now, but that is not yet clear as to what these people in reality want. So you've described so far a conflict, you know, which you, you said you just started really hearing about it uh, about four years ago. So it's it's definitely younger than many of the other conflicts in the region. And there's still a lot, I think, unknown in terms of its leadership and who it is. You were just in Cabo Delgado. Can, I mean, can you tell us more about that area of the country and what's the relationship of the people there with, with the national government in Maputo and, and their own leaders in that area? Uh, Cabo Delgado and Pemba in particular, unfortunately, it has become a war zone. It um, is home for the third biggest bay uh, in the world. It's a beautiful area, uh, but now it's um, Mozambique's biggest humanitarian crisis. What we see in terms of, of governance is that the government, uh, on the one hand, is unable to um, meet the basic uh, needs of the people. The IDPs are everywhere. And even those who arrived uh, in Pemba in past years, they are not being properly taken care of. Talking to people, you see anger, you see dissatisfaction as they have fled their homes because of a war that they do not understand. And the actions also of the police and the military, uh, most of the time, is uh, suspicious 
in relation to IDPs as they tend to look at them as uh, harboring uh, some of the violent extremists, which in most of the cases it is not true. And you look at the faces of women, faces of children, they are afraid um, of what is happening and trust with the authorities is not uh, there most of the time. Hmm. And what do we know about the political grievances that has been driving recruitment into this new militant group? The um, uh, the grievances and, and, and the root causes, they are there. Uh, you, can, you can name uh, a lot. But what we know is that it, it is more linked to extractivism and less with the uh, gas per se. So we have seen cases where the local populations who were benefiting of the artisanal mining, they have been uh, chased by the police and by the use of the state force in partnership with international capital. And this has created an army of young, uh, disenfranchised uh, people that are out there to be instrumentalized by uh, those who have ill intentions. But there are also issues um, of uh, illicit uh, uh, trade, which uh, underpin some of the uh, developments that are taking place in Cabo Delgado. So one cannot point out to one single uh, grievances. They, they are. And there are also uh, issues of religious dynamics intra-group, but that is not of um, uh, much significance compared to the socio-economic issues of marginalization and the utilization of the state machinery by uh, the powerful people from Cabo Delgado, but more importantly from Maputo in partnership with um, foreign capital who uh, disenfranchise the local young people. So, of course, you're, you're talking about the gemstone mining in the area, uh, rubies um, in particular, um, as well as, of course, the the LNG exploration um, and the and the presence of Total. Can you just describe, you know, uh, you've started talking about it, but how, you know, how the arrival of this foreign capital, of these extractive industries, uh, as you're calling it, and, and the elites in Maputo, how that played out in terms of relationships with communities on the ground, but particularly including the um, ethnopolitics of this region, you know, that, that might have helped drive some of the initial stages of the conflict that we've seen so far. Uh, indeed, what you have in Cabo Delgado is an economy of extractivism that is driven by the Maputo and Cabo Delgado-based uh, elites who uh, utilize the, the state machinery to expel artisanal miners who were locals, but also young people coming from other parts of Africa uh, looking for their fortunes. And these people, when expelled, not only expelled, but also there is uh, extortion um, by the police and um, by the military uh, against these young people who uh, not only suffer these extortions, but also they are beaten up by the police and they are angry 
and uh, they have the capacity to maneuver small arms and they are instrumentalized. Now, when these attacks and militancy started a few years ago, um, how did the government initially respond? The government uh, reacted inappropriately. First, it has ignored the signals that radicalization was taking place in, in northern Cabo Delgado. And then when the initial attacks occurred, government went militaristic. That, in our view, might have helped in further radicalization. Only very recently, government started to understand the need not only to uh, go militarily, but also to address the root causes of this conflict. And the root causes, as I've indicated, speak to the failure of governance, which benefits the Maputo and the Cabo Delgado elites. Now, on this podcast, we're doing a, a short series, which this episode is part of, on regional jihadism in East Africa. Um, and of course, Cabo Delgado is on the Tanzanian border. What, what do we know about the, the connection to Tanzania and, and the broader sort of East African Islamist movements in terms of what's happening in Cabo Delgado? Well, research is needed, but what we know from interviews and talking to uh, people in the, in the two sides of the border, what we see one is that Tanzania is not uh, welcoming uh, the refugees uh, from Mozambique that are, are crossing the border. And that in the other side of the border, there are perceptions that uh, some of the people who are perpetrating the attacks from this side then, then jump the border to the other side when uh, chased by uh, the military forces. So um, this is one. Uh, there is also the aspect of the young people who had come to Cabo Delgado for artisanal mining who were then radicalized by the response of the police and by the army. And uh, these are coming from other parts, particularly from the Great Lakes. And so the reports from some of the IDPs, they suggest that they are not only uh, Mozambicans, but they are young people from other parts of Africa, particularly from this area, who are, um, uh, are part of the violent extremist organization in northern Cabo Delgado. So the, the way we look at it, um, looking at the response now that is taking place under SADC and also Rwanda, we think that this can open up a much larger platform to address it not only in Mozambique, but also in the neighboring countries, particularly with a bit of more intelligence to chase them and deny them uh, rear bases, but, but also, and more importantly, it opened up the corridors uh, for intelligence to tracking uh, the movements, not only in Mozambique, but as I've said, in other parts uh, of Africa. Now, you've mentioned the Rwandan and the Sadiq interventions in Mozambique. You know, th those are still just starting to take shape over the last few months, of course. Uh, Maputo was reluctant to accept uh, Sadiq intervention for some time, um, can can you just update uh, our listeners on on what's that what that is currently looking like and 
you know you have uh, you have a bilateral offensives with from with the government and Rwandan forces and then you also have this Sadiq deployment. So how is this all shaping up and, and what's the plan? Indeed, uh, Maputo was initially reluctant to have uh, foreign troops in the country. But uh, with its inability to repeal violent extremists, it had to uh, open up its borders and allow Sadiq. Uh, but also in parallel, it allowed Rwanda to deploy troops. Uh, several countries have deployed under the ban of SADC, um, South Africa, Botswana, Lesotho, um, uh, Zimbabwe, and now we hear that Tanzania has finally agreed to deploy um, military support uh, to Mozambique. And in addition, uh, the Rwandese that are, are, are helping Mozambique. And thus far, that has resulted in the retaking of the strategic uh, Mosimboa da Praia town, which was under the control of the violent extremist organization. This is a strategic uh, win, a quick win, and we hope this can uh, galvanize uh, towards uh, more success in terms of repealing violent uh, extremists. But looking at uh, how things uh, evolved which it seems that there was no uh, resistance in the uh, reoccupation of Musimbo da Praia. This might suggest that violent extremists, they have run to other parts. It's not that they are being defeated, but they have um, uh, run to other parts, suggesting that they might be um, uh, organizing themselves uh, in other parts. So uh, this uh, suggests that a mid to longer term uh, military support, um, uh, which it should also take in, into account the issue of capacity building of the Mozambique army, and in parallel addressing the root causes while also tackling the issue of humanitarian uh, assistance, which should not be neglected by uh, the apparent military success. Now, why was this foreign military support needed? What, what, what's the state of the Mozambican military? No doubt that Mozambique needed a military uh, support from outside. There is no doubt. Uh, Mozambique has been neglecting adequate investment in its army. And preparing an army of a huge country like Mozambique, it takes at least uh, half a decade because it's not only about acquiring um, the equipment, it's also recruiting people, equipping people, and getting them ready for this type of conflict, which is violent extremism. So Mozambique was not prepared, um, but has been reluctant politically to invite um, at the early stage of the conflict, and this was a mistake. And also the, uh, the issue of control of this influx of foreign uh, military support uh, is an issue. So the overall governance of this uh, military support is indeed important because in other parts of Africa, um, while different countries uh, coming to support militarily, it might have helped in the short run, but in the mid-long run, it results in problems. Mm. And I, I do want to talk about some of those lessons from other contexts. Uh, first, though, what do we know about 
why Maputo invited Rwanda in uh, separately from Sadiq, and what is that dynamic moving forward in terms of how these different forces from different countries under different mandates uh, will, will, will work operating up there? Uh, this is something that we saw it with uh, suspicious and uh, is problematic in terms of uh, governance. Um, because while SADC has a clear mandate to intervene in Mozambique, and we have been expecting any other military support from outside to come under the banner of SADC, then all of a sudden the government rushed to have, um, to have uh, Rwanda uh, intervening uh, in Mozambique. No doubt that they are successful thus far, but the, gov- the overall governance of it and also understanding as to why it was deployed outside uh, the SADC uh, framework, it might suggest that it is more um, inclined to uh, protect uh, the LNG um, areas and less um, the broader mission of supporting Mozambique fight violent extremism. Um, and does it look like to you that the military operations thus far, as you might be leading to, are more focused on providing security for the return of those LNG operations than perhaps returning you know, security to the people? The current architecture seems to suggest that the Rwandese, they are more into cleaning um, uh, the LNG area for the resumption of the gas uh, operations, which that, that is really important. And looking at how SADC is positioning itself, although it's a short mission because it will end in October, um, that seems to suggest that this will be more oriented towards um, uh, a more longer, medium to longer term support uh, Mozambique in fighting violent extremism. And also looking the issues of capacity uh, particularly from South Africa, that has um, a, a stronger uh, navy um, and, 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 and intelligence capacity, uh, it suggests that. And this, it might result in people returning. But up until now, it is not clear that IDPs are returning to their homes uh, of origin. Now, you discussed, of course, uh, you know, some concerns about foreign interventions. And as you mentioned, we've, we, we've seen that the response to some of these uh, jihadi militant insurgencies, other places in Africa, you know, have, have often led to these regional forces, you know, Amazon and Somalia and the MNJTF around Lake Chad. What should the lessons be from those other examples in your estimation? What, what, what are your main concerns? One is the international humanitarian law. Respect to the international humanitarian law. Uh, respect uh, human rights and um, respect uh, civilians and the civilians' property and that uh, this uh, military support, it focuses on uh, fighting violent extremism and is not uh, then linked with uh, aspects of extractivism. We we, we also would like to see the um, dis-support not being utilized to further shrink the civic space uh, and liberties and freedoms uh, in Mozambique. In terms of targets starting to be uh, discreetly uh, deployed to target, uh, to target civilians, 
to target uh, human rights defenders and to target uh, civil society uh, activists. We also would like to see it time-bound, uh, mission accomplished, and um, uh, return home. Uh, in other parts of Africa, we have seen that uh, similar supports then uh, become reluctant to return home, and this then it starts to uh, gain a life uh, of its own. Interesting. And of course, I, I think one of the things that's very interesting about the conflict uh, in Mozambique is that, like I said earlier, it does feel more in its infancy, perhaps, than than some of these other conflicts, uh, such as in Lake Chad and in Somalia and in the Sahel. And what we've seen there, of course, that it that it has been very difficult to root these out. And, you know, and people describe these, you know, often as forever wars now in terms of how they feel like. So I, I'm wondering, how do you see this being prevented in the Mozambique context? You know, perhaps there's an opportunity here given that it may not be as rooted as other contexts to, for maybe northern Mozambique to take a different path. So can you sketch us a path on, on how to get there, how to get a political resolution to this conflict? Indeed. Um, there is one difference that we see with other parts of Africa, that uh, Mozambique civil society uh, is vibrant, is, is, is active, it's asking the right questions, and uh, civil society in, in that context has been proactive, in calling uh, for dialogue as a way to uh, sustainably uh, solve this conflict. There have been a number of initiatives here, uh, but also now and more robustly uh, initiatives uh, aimed at finding a platform for dialogue, which uh, it starts by suggesting ways of addressing some of the root causes, but also a community-anchored mechanisms uh, for dialogue and more globally avenues to identify as who the leaders are and uh, what are the issues that they have on table, on table and how those can be addressed. So this is ongoing, it's gaining momentum and looking uh, at what's happening in Afghanistan uh, this week, you, you, you clearly see that um, uh, billions of dollars invested uh, militarily, they will not give you a sustainable solution to uh, problems like these ones. Governance and dialogue uh, is the way forward. In your conversations with with authorities in in Maputo and in Cabo Delgado, do you see the appetite for this political strategy in addition to the military strategy, a a desire for moving ahead with dialogue? Uh, If you look at how government is responding, it started militarily, then it um, moved to look at issues uh, of governance, uh, the establishment of ADIN. Uh, it responded to calls uh, from civil society and to society uh, more at large. So we think that this is how government has been uh, responding. And perhaps it mirrors how the government works. Uh, so we think that that will indeed uh, gain a momentum. We have seen former President Juan uh, Kishisan also joining uh, the calls for dialogue as a way of sustainably addressing the conflict in northern Mozambique. And more and more people are vocal uh, about this. And we believe that by also engaging SADC and engaging African Union and, and the United Nations uh, dialogue as a way of sustainable solution to the conflict will gain momentum. 
Now, of course, dialoguing with groups uh, professing an Islamist ideology, uh, it's been challenging, you know, in, in, in many contexts around the world. Are there any places you're looking for examples in a way to, to make this work when it comes to dialoguing directly with, with the militants themselves and their leaders? We, we are looking first at the Mozambique history. Remember that Mozambique had a civil war. And that civil war, which had killed lots of people, it created lots of suffering, and it has taken the country uh, back in, in so many decades. It was only dialogue that helped Mozambique to reach where it is today. So we are learning from the Mozambique history itself. And, but we are also looking uh, at other parts uh, of Africa where there is dialogue. It might not be open, but uh, there is dialogue. In, uh, in Nigeria, we are learning that uh, there, there are paths and avenues uh, uh, of dialogue um, that are helping to mitigate um, the, 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 uh, uh, the activities of violent extremist organization. So w- we think with all these and the recent events in Afghanistan, it can only give us confidence that dialogue is the way forward. Mm. And have you seen any roadblocks given the way that this has been tied into the global war on terror? Of course, the, the United States has designated the group in northern Mozambique as ISIS Mozambique. Have you found that that, you know, designation towards uh, the, the militants in northern Mozambique, that it's creating any obstacles towards dialogue? Or do you think that, you know, the government is, is keen on moving forward with it? Uh, in, in the beginning, that was concerning that the United States has moved that direction. But now you will realize that there are more local organizations here who are gradually identifying who the leaders are. So we see that regardless of the uh, labeling, uh, locally, there are progresses towards embracing dialogue as the way forward. And more and more, uh, listening to the authorities here, uh, they are starting to use the concepts which uh, suggest that dialogue in their policy discourse, it is becoming to emerge as the way forward. And finally, Adriano, this has been a a really fascinating discussion. Um, uh, Finally, given all this, I'm just wondering what you see as, as the major role for regional and international partners to Mozambique. How can they help support, you know, this political strategy you're, you're sketching out without falling into some of the pitfalls that we've seen in, in other places uh, on the continent and, and uh, the globe? Indeed, uh, the uh, regional international community has a role to play, and that's a major role. Number one is that um, uh, humanitarian assistance should remain a top priority. Secondly, is addressing the issues of uh, socioeconomic development and inclusiveness, not only in, in the governance, but also in the outcomes, is key to uh, preempting the root causes of this conflict. Only the international community and particularly the regional forces and the neighboring countries, uh, they can push uh, uh, that uh, in supporting uh, uh, our agenda, which is a a civic-driven agenda for this. 
So, uh, but also it is the issue of having the the neighboring countries, the regional force, and the international community supporting uh, a, a sustainable way of addressing uh, the conflict, which of course should focus on Mozambique and not on Cabo Delgado, which is the spotlight, but it should be a regional approach. Because if anything goes wrong in Mozambique, that will have a spillover uh, in the region. So they need to be a coherent regional strategy response to the situation of the conflict in northern Mozambique. Dr. Navunga, thanks again for, for coming on and, and discussing all this with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the opportunity to contribute. Thanks for listening. Once again, The Horn is a podcast from the International Crisis Group, and this special summer series is produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation. I'm Alan Boswell, and this episode was produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi.